as we walk into this brand new series, I have a question for you. What does Jesus want me to do? Like if I could boil it down to like one thing, right? Like what does Jesus want me to do? I asked Jill this last night. We're getting ready for bed and I said, Jill, I want to share with you my sermon. I know you're going to be with the kids. Um, I'm going to start with a question. What does Jesus want me to do? And she's like, you're being really weird. Normally, you don't ask me about the intro of your sermon on a night, so what's going on? I said, I'm just curious, you know, what do you think about that? She's like, that sounds interesting. I said, yeah. I said, you know, and then I thought, you know, well, well what if I asked this question? What, what if I went down to Target, and I went down to the good old Target, and I walked through the aisles of the Target, and I was walking through, and I just kind of went up to people, and I was just like, what do you think Jesus wants you to do? Now, first of all, I don't know that I recommend this. This might be bad weird instead of good weird, and we want to be good weird, not bad weird. But if you went up to some people and you said, you know, what does Jesus want you to do? They might look at you a little strangely, or if they're going to be willing to answer, you might get a whole bunch of different answers. People probably wouldn't answer the same. I think the same is probably true in this room that we're in. If I asked everybody, now what does Jesus want you to do? You might think about it a little bit. You might give a little bit of a different answer. And I think this is one of those things that if you look at the church, I think we have a tendency to build our theology through the questions that we ask, and I think people think, well, what does Jesus want me to do? And they've kind of built a theology around that, and if we're not asking the right questions, we're probably going to get some of the wrong answers. Does that make sense? We have to ask the right questions so that we can get the right answers. And the cool thing is, we're not the first people to ask a question like this. For centuries, people have asked, what does Jesus want us to do? What are we supposed to do in this world, in the here and now? What am I supposed to do with the time and the life that I have been given? What am I supposed to do with that time and life? What's cool is, we're not, again, we're not the first people to ask this. And if we go back to this passage, we find out that that's exactly why Jesus answered the way he did. Person comes up to Jesus, and we find this in the different Gospels, which are the life and teaching of Jesus. Uh, we find uh, what's interesting about this story is that there's different people asking Jesus these questions under sort of different circumstances, but the question is still the same. This person looks at Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, of all of the things that I could do, of all of the stuff, all these commandments that I see, all the ways that I'm supposed to love God, and you know, if you could just boil this down for me, you know, that would really help. And I love the question. In some stories, there's the idea that they were trying to trap Jesus into maybe giving a wrong answer. Some of them, I think it's a legitimate question. What do you want me to do? And I look at this and I say, please, tell me. I would love to know. This would just make things so much simpler if you would just give a simple answer, Jesus. And they knew that he was probably going to give some convoluted answer. Then he was going to probably go into a story and they were going to go, now we have to figure out what this parable means. Just give me an answer. And he does. He does. He says, so the, the guy asks him, he says, teacher. It's an interesting word, teacher, rabbi. I'm willing to hear what you're going to teach me here, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. So he looks back, he looks at the Hebrew scriptures, and he says, of all of these laws and commandments that God had you know, given his people, what is the greatest of them? Maybe if I get this right, if I follow the right one, things are going to go the direction they're supposed to. I'm going to be following uh, what, what you really want me to do. She's fine. What you really want me uh, to do. And uh, so, so what do we do? So Jesus answers this. I love this. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. 
this is the first and the greatest commandment. So he just answers. Just gives a straight up answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You think, well, that seems easy, except, well, what does he mean by heart? What's he mean by soul? What does he mean by mind? What does it mean within the context of this? What does it mean within the context of the Hebrew scriptures? And we all have preconceived notions, don't we? What heart, soul, mind means. We might have pictures that come to our minds. Most of us, if we close our eyes and I would say heart, you would have a certain picture that would come to mind. And it might not be a physical heart. It might be something else that comes to your mind. The same thing is true with soul and mind. Now, it might become clearer if I say something like, like maybe heart, gut, and head. Maybe that helps a little bit. Maybe we take it into actions. Feel. Respond. And think. See, Jesus is pointing to reality that's true for all of us and unique to each of us. Because loving God with our heart, our soul, and our mind means loving God with our whole being, the fullness of our identity, and becoming aware of how we live out that aspect of our being. So for some of us, again, like I said earlier, we're going to find some unhealthy ways that we're living, aspects of our lives we might need to pay closer attention to. But we begin this journey by looking at what Jesus calls the heart. And here's what's cool. As he does this, this Jesus answer is wrapped up in the stories of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew scriptures, because Jesus is actually quoting a prayer that has been said for thousands of years. We find this ancient prayer in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verses 4 through 5, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So this guy asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment, all, all the commandments? Jesus actually goes back into the Hebrew scriptures that this person would know. He goes back to a prayer that this person would have prayed because for the Jewish people, for the Israelites, for the Hebrew people, this was a prayer that they said on a daily basis. Uh, this is a prayer that continues to get said. He said, hear, O Israel. And the guy says, oh, I know this prayer. I've said this prayer my whole life. This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord our God, and the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, the word here that starts this prayer is the word Shema. And so this prayer has become known as the Shema. It's where this prayer gets its name. So we're to hear these words. This is so, this is so cool. And the word here, this word Shema, isn't just about listening. It's not like the noise that Maggie made as she dropped a bunch of stuff. Oh, I heard that. It's responding to it. Chris jumps out of his chair. He goes, walks over. He helps Maggie. And then I think you know, he left the door open, but he helped Maggie. He got it all figured out. So he didn't just hear the noise. Chris responded to it. You don't just hear something. Some of you hear an ambulance. And the first thing you do is instead of praying, you jump in the car and you go chase it. Because I want to go find out what happened. You're hearing and you're responding. I encourage you to respond with prayer next time instead of chasing. But it doesn't matter. That's a whole different sermon. But hear and respond. And that's what's going on here. Hear and respond. So this means a shift in our lives, a shift and a change in our hearts. So now let's go back to the Hebrew. Let's go back to what this passage was written in. In the original language of the Hebrews, we have hear meaning shema, hear and respond. And then we have the word Heart, which is the word lavav or lev. This word shows up a ton of times in scripture. 
And it helps us then to understand the meaning. So I want to do a little word study as we continue to go through the sermon. And what I want us to see is that we're going to discover this idea of levav is more than just our physical heart. It's an emotional reality. Uh, It's spiritual. What's fascinating is for the ancient people, it was the mental center of their lives, not here, but here as well. And so when they talk about loving God with their whole heart, there's a whole lot taking place here. Now, we still talk about the heart like this. When somebody says something like, I mean it from the bottom of my heart, you don't like reach over and go, well, do you? Do you? I can't feel it, right? I mean, you know that it's more than just a physical aspect. You know that heart is bigger than this thing that beats in your chest. Because we also say things, words like this. Did you ever say this? Don't be half-hearted about it. Or, well, she really had a change of heart. She didn't get a transplant. She had a change of heart. She changed her mind about it, right? So we still talk like this, these aspects, this change of heart. Now, there's another metaphor. This is super cool. In Psalm 34, 18, we read this. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. This is cool. This is actually where we get the term brokenhearted. It's from this psalm. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. It doesn't take much life to experience what it feels like to be brokenhearted, right? You have kids, you have a teenager, you know that at some point they're going to have their heart broken. They're going to be brokenhearted. But for those of you who lead with your heart, this is where I want to get specific. For those of you who lead with your heart, you sort of understand this maybe at a little deeper level than others of us. To use another metaphor, where do you wear your heart? You wear your heart on your sleeve. If you lead with your heart, you're the kind of person that you wear your heart on your sleeve. You're the kind of person in life that when you encounter something, your first reaction is that you feel something. You might feel compassion about this. I always laugh at my daughter because we're driving in the car, and I'm, I, I'm about this close to road rage half. I just want you to be aware. I just, just, so if I ever see you in the township and you pull out in front of me, I'm sorry. Like I try, to, I try to understand that I have a role in this community, and you know that person might be like, I don't think I want to go to that guy's church. Well, you don't want you to cut me off in traffic, and maybe I don't want you to go to my church, right? That's what I'm just saying. But Emily, meanwhile, is sitting next to me, and she'll be like, oh, Daddy, maybe they're having a bad, you know, maybe they're rushing off to see a family member. Maybe something's going on. I'm like, who made you? Where did you come from? She just, she's so compassionate. It's all, I mean, it's wonderful. It's amazing. But I look at her, and I'm just like, You're, you just, you are so feeling. You are just so compassionate. Now, I love this. Don't, don't, if this is you, I don't want you to shy away from that part of you. Look at this passage again. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now, listen to this. The author of this passage says, not only is the God of the universe, this is incredible, the God of the universe is aware of the emotional reality of our hearts. And then he also draws close and comforts us in those moments. And here's what's cool. You, the the, the heart on the sleeve people, you give us a picture of that God. 
thank you. Thank you for being you. But there's a shadow side to this. Sometimes you feel like you're not doing enough. Sometimes you feel like maybe you're not good enough. Sometimes you feel like maybe you're not unique enough. And I want to encourage you. And all of us, be okay with being brokenhearted. And when you feel those moments, when you feel those times, you say, I'm not good enough or I'm not doing enough. Because you lead with your heart. You feel it in your depth. Just remember that God is close to the brokenhearted. Rest in his love and his grace in the God of the universe who draws close and heals and looks at you and says, you are more than enough. And you are doing more than enough. Sometimes you have to step back, be ministered to and trying to minister to everybody else. And let God, let God's love pour over your heart and your life. So that's another place that we see this emotional aspect of our hearts. Show how God in his wonder and his grace meets us there. But again, like I said, there are other aspects of the heart that are talked about in Scripture. We find another one in passages like this in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom reposes in the heart of the discerning. I love, I love this word, reposes. Other translations say wisdom finds rest, lives in, or finds a home in the heart of the discerning. I, we don't really say words like reposing very much, right? So I like, this, I like this idea, like the picture of this. You know when you walk in, you know you're just home. Just the smell, barking of the dogs, you know, just something about home. It's kind of the idea here. It's saying wisdom finds rest, is at home in the discerning person, the understanding person, the intelligent person. And another metaphor of our culture, we're often told to follow our hearts, right? <laughs> this passage is like, hold up. Just follow your heart. It's saying we should all pause. We should take an inventory of what's in there. Because sometimes when we just follow our hearts, we're not being discerning. We're not being wise. We're not being intelligent, right? Let me step back. Use some wisdom. So which is probably why at another point the author of the Proverbs wrote this word. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart for everything flows from it. Man, Ryan, don't let that anger get in when that person cuts you off. You know, stop, hold up a second. Like, guard your heart, protect it from those things. We all have pieces in our lives that we need to be, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't want that to find rest. I don't want that to find its place in my heart. Sometimes we get to places where we're asking questions, again, about ourselves, saying, I'm not good enough. You've allowed that to settle into your heart instead of letting into our hearts the wisdom of God, the knowledge of his love for us. Let those things fill our hearts. Jesus referenced this reality. In Luke 6, 45, he was teaching his disciples, and he said this. He said, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So what's in our heart impacts what we say, how we live, what we do, 
which again comes back to the essence of this prayer. If we're to live as people who love God with all of our hearts, what dwells in our heart matters. Man, this is like gut check, inventory check stuff. Like, it was fine. Like, I'm, I'm with Jesus. A good man brings out good things out of the good store of his heart. Evil man brings out evil things stored in his heart. And then he says, for out of the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Well, in my case, the heart is full of 12-year-old jokes, apparent, or, you know, 12 little, you know what I'm trying to say, right? But all of us, right, you said, have you ever, have you ever caught yourself? You say something and you go, ooh, what was in my heart? There was something deep down in there that something came out that was supposed to say inside that got outside, and there's sort of an inventory moment. Okay, well, if that just got outside, what's going on on the inside? Now, sometimes I think we have a tendency to wonder and to say, you know, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Oh, you meant to say it. You just let it come out. It's been in there the whole time. So Jesus is saying, what's in your heart? What's going on in there? So again, if we're to live as people who love God with all of our hearts, what dwells, what makes a home, what lives in our hearts matters. Now, let's see another place in another passage that talks about this. It helps us understand this a bit. Writing to a church in the city of Colossae, the apostle Paul talks about this. I think this is a great place for us to kind of conclude our teaching. Because what I wanted to do was this. I, as we talked about this, I, did, I didn't want to just give us a frame of reference for the heart. I didn't want to just give us a word study for the heart and be like, okay, cool, now I understand what they meant about the word heart. I'll just go do better. Like, that's not really what we're trying to do here. We want to follow Jesus. We want Jesus to be the center of our lives. And this passage is going to bring us that to reality. Because, again, what dwells in our hearts is what's going to matter. So listen how Paul talks about this. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And then he goes on, he describes this. He says, put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Man, Paul like went from zero to 60 in like five verses. And it's like, okay, he got real serious real quick, but he's saying, listen, you claim to follow Jesus. He's saying you have been resurrected with Jesus. Everything else before is supposed to be dead. And he says, so why are you looking to the things that make up this mess here when you're supposed to be focused on this up here? He says, so focus your eyes on Jesus. Let go of all this stuff here. So Paul doesn't pull any punches. He's straight to the point. And then if what he said isn't hard enough, he adds another list to all of this that we struggle with at some point. And then he says that God will let us deal with all the results of this stuff. So this is, this is fascinating. We get to this. I, I don't have the time to, to fully unpack this verse because of these, the wrath of God is coming. There's a whole lot going on there. But one of the aspects of that that I want us to just understand is this. When we are just blatant about permitting our lives to exist in the life of sin, 
When we say, you know what, I'm just going to live in, I'm going to lean on into greed, I'm going to lean on into lust, I'm going to lean on into all this immorality, sometimes God says, okay, this is your free will. Let's, let's let this play out. Let's just see where this goes. Let's just see what happens here. Th- this is part of this idea that, that God gives us the free will to live the reality of sin. And sin has consequences. And if you live a life like this, it's going to be ugly. It's going to be gross. It's going to be a mess. And it's going to feel eventually like hell. Because what you're doing is you're saying, I'm just going to live my life as if I'm in charge, I'm the one that matters, and I'm just going to create hell for me and everybody around me. And so he says, the wrath of God is coming for you. You're going to experience just the mess of things if you don't live your life with your sight on things above. So listen, he goes on. But now you must also rid yourself. So it's like, wait, you just gave this list, I was good. Like, I get it. Like, I'm, I'm like, okay, put to death. Okay, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Okay, that's good. Then he says, now you must also rid yourself of these things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Crap. <laughs> this is where this list starts to hit home. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands this morning. But if I did, and I went through this list, I think we would all be like, oh, great. He's like, anger. Come on, man. Like, couldn't you start with something else? Paul. Right? I just did it again, right? Like, He's like, rage, malice, slander, filthy like, come on, Paul. So what do we do? If we set our hearts on things above, if we love God with our hearts, what does that look like? How do we get there? Because when I'm reading Paul here, this is starting to downright just feel impossible, but it's not impossible, and that's the good news. It's not impossible because of Jesus. So Paul concludes this. He says, therefore, therefore, it's like Paul's key word. He's like, life is a mess, life is a mess, life is a mess. You're a screw up. You keep messing up. You can't get this figured out. You have not gotten it. Hold up. Therefore, oh, yes. What are you going to tell me, Paul? He says, God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect union. And to that, Paul, I say, you can't be serious. Because I'm leaning way towards the other list more than this list here. It cannot just be I'm in my power going to replace this thing with this thing. When somebody cuts me off in traffic, oh yes, I'm just going to magically remove this part of me and take on Emily's aspects. That doesn't work. That doesn't seem to make sense. So what's Paul's answer to that? He says it's not about you. 
let the peace of Christ, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. So what does it mean, let the peace of Christ rule in my heart? Another passage, Paul writes these words, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And so then we get to these questions. What will rule in my heart? What will rule in my heart is right. What will I believe in my heart? So here's some questions for you this morning as we close. Will you be ruled by your fear, your passion, your anger, your sin? Or will you let the Prince of Peace Christ Jesus, make his home within you, dwelling within you. As Paul said, will you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart? Another question is, what do you look for for hope in this world? Paul points us to hope found in Jesus, that hope and salvation is found through him. Paul says, we can make anything our Lord, but that only Jesus deserves that place in our hearts. So will you experience the peace in your heart that comes from trusting and having a relationship with him? See, I think the answer is this. No, I can't just make it work better. No, I can't just replace this stuff with this stuff because I can't do that in my own power. That's impossible. Which is why Paul said, you were raised with Christ. The old is gone. He says, your heart is is going to be spiritually remade. In fact, because of Jesus, you're getting a heart transplant. What seemed impossible is now possible. And I love this. So we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, not because of something that we do, but because of something that Jesus does within us. But I have to trust him with my heart. I have to give him my heart. I have to give him this place and say, come and rule my heart. And I love that he says, the prince of peace rules your heart. Because see, if you try to make anything else rule, if you try to make anything else the king, if you try to make anything else lead your life, there's no peace. It always turns out to be a mess. It always turns out to be a swirling mess of pain. And Paul says, look, if you would just make Jesus the ruler of your heart, I'm telling you there is a peace. And he goes on and he says in another passage, surpasses all understanding. You can't understand. I can't explain it. I can only tell you that you can experience in it. So that's what I want to close with today. This idea that we can experience this, learning rhythms of new grace that teach us how to love God with all our hearts, when we trust our hearts with him. So let's pray together, and we're going to have a couple opportunities to respond today. The first opportunity to respond is as the band comes up, we're going to sing together. And so we're going to have this opportunity to reflect and to sing, to have some words given to us for that. And then we're going to respond with some written words that we say together that allow us to confess 
that Jesus is Lord, to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And so these two opportunities are giving us this opportunity to say, listen, I don't know, but what I know I need is I need Jesus. Let's pray, and then we'll sing together. Let's stand together. God, we are so thankful. You have taught us how to love. How to love you with our whole hearts. And it's not something we do, but again, it's something that you have done for us through Jesus. So God, as we sing this morning, as we respond this morning, help us all in this space, in this moment, and today to take some inventory. Where, where are we? Are we following? Are we listening? Are we having you rule our hearts? God, today we respond to you. Amen.